Israel came out of Egypt, uh, led by Moses, um, in or around the year 1450 BC. They wandered around the desert wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula and Western Arabia for 40 years. As this time of wandering came to an end, they began to move north, passing the south end of the Dead Sea, then moving uh, steadily northward along the eastern edge of the Dead Sea until they were just across from Jericho, separated only by the Jordan River. This was Moabite territory. And the Moabite king and all his people were terrified by this vast crowd, even though they were just passing through. The king, whose name was Balak, son of Zippor, tried to hire the services of a mysterious man named Balaam, son of Beor. Although not an Israelite himself, Balaam knew the Lord, and he practiced, for a fee, the art of divination. That meant that if you gave him money, he found out what God thought about one thing or another. King Balak thought that he'd buy Balaam's services and get him to curse the nation of Israel so that he could defeat them in battle and drive them out of his nation. So frightened was he of these asylum seekers. But Balaam refused. Three times they had the same conversation. Three times Balak asked Balaam to curse Israel. Three times Balaam sought the face of the Lord and found out that actually this was God's people, his chosen nation, his precious inheritance, and that out of this people would come a king, one king who would rule all the nations. Three times Balaam prophesied about these people and then blessed them. After all, as he kept on explaining to the king, I can only speak what God gives me to say. Then Balaam went home. Now, all of this can, of course, be found in the book of Numbers, chapters 22, 23, and 24. However, when we start in to Numbers chapter 25... Suddenly we hear that Moab's policy towards these Hebrew refugees has completely changed. Where did this policy change come from? The Moabite women invited the Israelite men to go to their church where they worshipped Baal of Peor, the Canaanite god of storms, rain, and fertility. And the men were only too happy to accept Now you see, right across the ancient world, from the earliest days of the Old Testament through to the last days of the New Testament, from Cairo all the way round to Rome, pagan temple worship involved essentially the same elements. Uh, The worship may have included various mysterious procedures and ceremonies, but your average person was really simply just a bystander, just an observer to those things. No, the reason for going was the meat. The animal sacrifices, sacrificed uh, in the name of this god or that god to appease the gods and the goddesses or to feed them. But all of that meat, of course, turned to feasting. Most people did not eat meat except on very special occasions. Animals were too valuable to slaughter except only very occasionally. And without refrigeration, 
the whole animal had to be eaten at essentially a single sitting. A sheep provided enough meat for dozens of people. A bull or cow, enough meat for a whole town. So then, a religious festival was an occasion to eat meat. Roasted meat, delicacy of delicacies. And if you're going to stuff yourself with barbecued meat, you're going to need lots of wine to wash it all down. They got drunk. Uh, They danced. They let their hair down. And then, of course, there was the sex. Although not all pagan temple worship involved orgies, far from it, there was yet and nevertheless a lot of sex associated with pagan temple worship in general. In Canaanite times, it was believed that the fertility gods and goddesses needed to be aroused in order that they might do the deed for you. The land of Canaan was dependent upon rain. Not like Egypt, not with its river Nile and irrigation things. No, those folk needed rain. So large numbers of people stripping off and having sex right in front of the god, in front of the idol, that would surely arouse him into action and he would send rain. The, 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 the fertilizing blessing of heaven. Now, in Roman times, uh, many temples offered the services of large numbers of male and female prostitutes for similar reasons. A couple of other things to know. Right across the ancient world, you couldn't just go to a butcher shop and buy meat, or rather, the meat that you might find for sale at the butcher's stall in the market had been offered in the name of some god or some goddess in some kind of religious ceremony. Animals weren't simply slaughtered for the heck of it. That was unknown. No, all animals were sacrificed in one form of worship or another. And because that was the case, these temple feasts were occasions for the whole community to come together. If you lived in a town or in a district, your attendance would be assumed. And it would be very strange for you not to be there. So then... Returning to the book of Numbers, 1450 BC, in terms, of crippling, uh, uh, in terms of crippling Israel as a spiritual force to be reckoned, in terms of totally destroying their witness as the holy people of a holy God, the, 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 the invitation to Baal worship was pure genius. The nation fell headlong into breaking three of the Ten Commandments, the first, the second, and the seventh, worshipping other gods, worshipping idols, committing fornication and adultery. The witness and purity of God's people destroyed in a stroke. And with that, their authority. Who was responsible for coming up with this strategy? Numbers 25 doesn't tell us. But in Numbers 31, we hear it from Moses' mouth that actually it was Balaam. He just couldn't resist that diviner's fee he found a way to accept the money. These things, this is all background, but it helps us to decode the book of Revelation and specifically the two letters that we're looking at this week. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 29, page uh, 992, is that right? Yeah. Um, Jesus' words to the church of Pergamon and to the church of Thyatira. Both churches are under threat, although it's an internal threat. 
both churches are in trouble because both churches contained various groups that argued that it was okay to keep going to the local temple and to participate in what was really the cornerstone of Greco-Roman culture and society. And this is one of the reasons why Christians were hated right across the Roman Empire. It was because they were anti-social atheists. They said the temple worship was wrong and they refused to participate. So then, obviously, they, they didn't like people very much, did they? They were antisocial. They didn't do their civic duty and they were atheists. They didn't believe in the gods. It was disgraceful. It was disgusting. I mean, what would you expect from a group of people who worshipped a, a crucified criminal as though God? I mean, isn't that just the last word in perversity? The, the city of Pergamon, in particular, that was where emperor worship began. In their zealousness for the honor of the Roman emperor, they began with Augustus. Pergamon was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. It was a hotbed of right-wing religious respectability. Um, a little bit later than the book of Revelation was written, maybe 20 years later, in the year 12 AD, 112 AD, uh, uh, Pliny the Younger, who was the Roman governor of the region, the province of Asia, wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan describing how he dealt with any Christians whom he'd uncovered. He writes, quote, In the case of those who are denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. I mean, after all, uh, for I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Uh, Pliny the Younger continues, quote, Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statues of the gods, and whenever, moreover, they cursed Christ none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do, these, I thought, should be discharged. Others, named by the informer, declared that they were Christians but then denied it, asserting that they had ceased to be some three years before, others many years before, some as much as 25 years. They all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ." Unquote. So then, uh, they saw themselves as the guardians of conservative religion and respectability. How did God see them? Uh, Jesus tells us, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, uh, my faithful 
witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. But for uh, Gentiles, uh, for Gentiles who'd come to faith in Jesus Christ, the temptation to continue to participate in pagan temple life, we know it was a considerable temptation. After all, the common pagan belief with respect to sexual desire was basically, if you have an itch, you scratch it. I mean, we all have appetites, don't we? Uh, If you're hungry, have something to eat. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. And pretty much every conceivable sexual appetite could be catered for in the ancient world without shame or disgrace, especially if you were rich and free. And then again, for us as Christians, aren't we as Christians free? Hasn't the cross liberated me from the law of Moses? I've been forgiven. I've been set free from all these regulations and rules. Why can't we just continue to join in? Well, Paul, as you may well know, Paul deals with the problem of this temptation and with the false but sophisticated theology that gave it credence, he deals with this problem at length in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it takes him the best part of four and a half chapters to explain why it is totally and completely unacceptable for Christians to have sex with temple prostitutes and to likewise eat meat in participation with pagan worship, something that Paul calls demonic. Those Christians in Corinth, they need to radically rethink sex and sexuality, marriage and faithfulness, and what it means to participate in a holy meal. And they needed to understand a biblical sexual ethic. They needed to understand what the Bible has to say about sex and why it says it. Even though it was so very, very alien to them and so difficult to understand. And that the people around them were so hostile to these ideas. Well, Jesus, dealing with the same problem now through correspondence with the two Asian churches, says, he says that to teach such theology and to practice such behaviors is to make an enemy out of him. There is no call to split or to leave, but both of these churches are to repent of allowing this element to be present in the first place. These churches have erred by tolerating what Jesus finds intolerable. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. We don't know what her real name was. Jesus gives her the name Jezebel symbolically, uh, recalling Queen Jezebel married to King Ahab, who ruled uh, the northern kingdom of Israel between um, 869 and 850 B.C., Uh, Jezebel was ruthless in her persecution of the Lord's prophets and fearless in her promotion of Baal worship in that northern kingdom of Israel. And she was, of course, an out-and-out enemy of God. Some things for us to notice from verses 21 to 23. Verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. A call to repent is a call to turn back to God and say sorry for the wrong things we've done. God always calls clearly 
somehow or another. This Jezebel person, she knows in her heart, she knows that what she's doing is wrong. She knows, she knows because God has told her that it's wrong. But in her desire to be free of sexual restrictions, she rationalizes what she's doing anyway. She rationalizes the conviction away. Notice also that she has time. God just never simply zaps people. No, a call to repent is always given with time. Time to consider. Enough time. But verse 22 says, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. Jesus will give enough time, but then he's going to up the ante. Perhaps unsurprisingly, sexually transmitted diseases will become prevalent. Uh, There is some irony in the fact that beds in the Bible are associated with sickness as well as with sex. The bed of pleasure will become a bed of pain. And for those who do repent, there's always more grace. Clearly, unequivocally, Jesus holds out forgiveness to them, even now. Yes, you can be forgiven, of course. For those who are, who are repentant, there's always more grace. But for those who are unrepentant, the sickness and the suffering will lead in one direction. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Um, uh, children is a, a technical term uh, for disciples. Um, uh, obviously, um, depending on context, most of the time in the New Testament, it refers to, to children, uh, but it's also the technical, t- technical term for disciples, students. Those uh, who follow uh, Jezebel will follow her to the grave. The time given for repentance is fair and adequate, but time for repentance doesn't last forever. Unrepentant sin leads to death because it is a rejection of God who is the source of life. Jesus is quite happy to play hardball, and he is judge, using words here that are exclusively God's words in the Old Testament. I know the thoughts and attitudes of every human heart. It is my job to judge that, that, uh, that's, that's what the Lord says in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. Both letters, true to form, of course, end with a note of encouragement. Encouragement to persevere. These notes of encouragement talk about what's on offer to those who keep following Jesus and what's on offer for those who keep on following Jesus is eternal life. In keeping with the um, the apocalyptic literary style, symbols are used that must be decoded, and the cipher to the code is Israel's shared cultural and literary history. Verse 17, To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What is this hidden manna? Manna. Well, Jesus is the hidden manna, the true bread, the bread that was hidden, then revealed, now is hidden again, but we'll understand in heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. 
But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. In other words, whoever lives depending upon Jesus and him crucified lives eternally. His sacrifice is sufficient. As for the white stones, well, there's no clear biblical reference to explain that, but in terms of their culture, um, well, when, um, when, when, uh, when a jury sat deciding a case, they used stones to announce their decision. A black stone meant guilty, conviction. A white stone meant not guilty. Also, white stones were sometimes used as entry tickets into public festivals. Again, whoever lives depending upon Jesus and his work on our behalf, him crucified, that one lives eternally. That one is not guilty. That one may enter in. That one is newly named. God owns them as his created by him, him or her. He or she belongs to him. Verse 26, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Uh, Jesus made it plain to his disciples when he was on earth teaching them um, in so many of his parables, in so much of his teaching, Jesus made it obvious that this world offers us pretend treasures and play authority, but for those who prove faithful, real treasure and real authority will be given. And the morning star? Well, Jesus is the bright morning star. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. God himself is the most perfect reward of those who belong to him. If, if I, for example, if I, if I keep on following and obeying Jesus, if I keep on trusting in the forgiveness that I have through the cross, my best possible reward is Jesus. When God saved his people by the hand of Moses delivering them up out of the land of Egypt, saving them from slavery and the oppression of Pharaoh, they entered a time of testing before they entered the promised land. And most of them failed the test. The New Testament understands that the life we live now is similar. It is a time of testing. The New Testament doesn't want you to understand that now that you're baptized, now that you go to church, now that you tell others that you're a Christian, you're finally and conclusively saved. No. Now, now that I am saved, I wait to be saved. Now that I'm in the kingdom, I wait for the kingdom. How does Jesus encourage us? Well, he encourages us to know that if we keep on holding on to him, he will keep on holding on to us. For he always saves those who ask to be saved. He always saves those who cry out to him and who trust in what he's done at the cross. 
he forgives those who ask for forgiveness and saves those who don't trust in what they themselves have done, but put their trust wholly and squarely in him. What could possibly stop us, therefore, from holding on to Jesus? Well, this passage gives us much to think about in answer to that question. Our text demands, our text today demands that we consider how we engage with the rampant idolatry in our culture and with our society's expectations with respect to sex and sexualized behavior. Some of us may consider it bizarre that first century Christians couldn't understand why having sex with temple prostitutes, male and female, the majority of course being under 18 years of age, they couldn't understand why God would consider that wrong. But such behavior was acceptable to them on their basis of their understanding of sexuality, if it feels good, do it, and on their understanding of personhood. They're children, women, slaves. We don't afford them the same dignity as others. They are commodities, literally. They can be bought and sold. Prince Charles and Prince Andrew uh, grew up in a family and in a culture where it was considered absolutely fine for princes to commit adultery and to hang out with courtesans, a courtesan being a royal groupie. Uh, naturally, uh, both married and single women would be only too pleased to sleep with them. That's the culture they grew up in. Prince Charles has already paid an extremely high price price for those assumptions, and Prince Andrew may well be about to pay an even higher price if the allegations against him are true. Certainly, um, from the little I know, for Prince Philip and for Prince Charles to lecture Prince Andrew, and I understand that they both have, would be the height of hypocrisy. But then there's us. Pretty much universally now in Australia, young Australians believe that it is okay to have sex before marriage. And it's considered pretty normal to look at pornography, as long as it isn't too gross or illegal. But the Bible is quite clear. It is gross sin to have sex outside of marriage, before marriage or outside of marriage. It's unacceptable. And pornography, like prostitution, turns human beings into commodities. Things to be used. Pornography strips people of human dignity. And painfully, this text demands that we, the church, we sort ourselves out with respect to same-sex marriage. Something that now makes perfect sense to most Australians, culturally speaking. In, in contrast, I believe that the Bible is clear, consistent, and authoritative when it teaches the absolute unacceptability of male-male anal intercourse and when it defines marriage as between a man and a woman. But the debate continues. The argument of uh, some in the church, of some of those who disagree with me, is not that I'm wrong about what the Bible says, but that ultimately what the Bible says doesn't really matter. That's not an argument I can take seriously. 
the argument of others in the church who disagree with me is that I'm not wrong about what the Bible says, but that I'm wrong about what the Bible means. And that is an important argument, not something to be dismissed lightly. I am yet to be convinced, but yes, we do indeed at all times need to be extremely careful with respect to biblical interpretation, not just about what it says, but what about, it, about what it means for us today. And judging by how the church has worked through other controversies in the past, uh, slavery and abolition, uh, women in leadership, uh, usury, or interest, the divine right of kings, divorce and remarriage, etc., 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 in the light of the dozens of controversies uh, that we've had in the last 2,000 years, I would say that on average it would probably take the global church somewhere in the order of a century for us to get to some point of settlement on this question. As we've seen today in our text, Jesus is patient with us. But we must be very sure not to settle for something in which we tolerate something that is intolerable to God. For us, uh, in conclusion, two things we must see clearly. Firstly, since the days of Moses, the Bible has presented us with a view of human sexuality that has, been, uh, uh, that has consistently been alien and shocking to those who encounter it. And alien and shocking to surrounding cultures. From the days of Moses, we, the people of God, the saved people of God, have responded to what's in the Bible by saying in one way or another, you cannot be serious. And then discovering that actually God is serious, deadly serious. That's my first conclusion. My second is like it. Our two texts today, Numbers, and revelations remind us that when, when the saved people of God who are waiting to be saved, when they are given a choice between continuing in God's salvation or living in a de-restricted, sexualized society, a very significant proportion of us choose the latter. And that's something for us to think about. Dear Lord Jesus, Please give us ears and help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen.